All right, so glad you guys made it this morning. Uh, my mic feels hot. Is it hot? Okay, good. Something, something needs to be because it's quite uh, chilly in here. Uh, those of you that know me know that I also, uh, for fun, I coach uh, CrossFit in the evenings. And so you didn't know this, but we turned it down so we can do burpees this morning. Are you guys? Yeah? Okay, well, okay. Uh, I, that backfired because I didn't want that to uh, feel excitement in here. So uh, we're not going to do that, but I'm so thankful that you are here. What you can do, and I was quasi-joking this morning, is, you know what? You know what would help in this cold room, even though we turn the heat up? Uh, is that for one day, what if we just pretended uh, that we were a charismatic church, and so we would be dancing and screaming and running down the aisles or whatever it is, uh, and then we can do it every week, because I would love that. Uh, but yes, thank you. There we go. That's a good start. Uh, so with that said, this morning we continue our series called Spirit, uh, Soul, Body, uh, and we're talking about what it looks like and what it means to be a, a, a whole person uh, and having our identity in Christ. Uh, and this morning we're talking about our bodies. I know that oftentimes this could raise uh, pain or or trigger different experiences, uh, insecurities, shame even. And so uh, I, I kind of had a hard time preparing this message because what I want you to know is that uh, A, uh, this isn't a self-help talk. There, there's plenty of self-help videos and, and people doing speeches and, and books, and so there's plenty of those. Uh, this isn't necessarily a place where I would say if you're dealing with uh, you know, body images uh, issues or, or shame or, or insecurities that uh, I do believe that God has something to say. Uh, about that, and I do believe that God uses uh, gifted professionals to walk alongside you, to wrestle with you know in this conversation with you, and and to ask you questions that you may not even know to ask, and to look parts of your life and your heart that you may not even know to do. And so, uh, so I, I I just need to to say that as we talk because. A, I do believe that God cares about our bodies and how we treat it, uh, and B, that I know it's an issue in a place where many of us, many of us have struggled in different facets, and you're not alone, and it's okay. And there's people that will support and love and care for you, uh, and so uh, I need to start off with that. Uh, our verses today, actually, I'm, I'm using a different translation, but uh, it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, and it's a little bit of a unique passage uh, because it's kind of confusing to understand. And so my hope this morning is we can unpack that and see how that applies to our lives. Uh, and so 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 to... I don't know. I'll stop when I feel like we should stop. So uh, some of you guys are like, that's scary. Uh, No, it's just going to be a few verses. Uh, Starting from verse 12. All things are lawful for me, 
But not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both uh, one and the other. The body is meant not for fornication, but for the Lord, uh, and the Lord for the body. Uh, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I, therefore, take members of Christ and make them members of prostitutes? Okay, let's pray. God, thank you for the ways that you've given us life. And life within our own selves and our souls and our spirit and, and life that is expressed in our bodies. And we thank you that we have that gift. Uh, may we steward that. May we use it to glorify you to bring wholeness not only to ourselves but to others. We thank you for the work that you're doing in and through us. And may we know that you are alive and well uh, in our lives, in our hearts, and our spirits. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. So in the third century, uh, there was this philosopher that many of us may be uh, aware of or, or have read about, and his name was Plato. Uh, he was a Greek philosopher, uh, and he had a famous quote, and the famous quote said something like this, the body is the prison for the soul. The body is the prison for the soul. You see, Plato's main teaching uh, around uh, his philosophy on the human being is that there was a material and an immaterial part of who we are, uh, with the latter, with the immaterial, being the most important. In other words, uh, what he would often teach is that uh, our bodies, the material part of who we are, is less important than the soul, which is the immaterial part of who we are. Uh, And so he would go as far as saying the physical death of our bodies uh, is a way that that our soul escapes imprisonment, imprisonment of our bodies. So essentially what he's saying is body is bad, soul is good. And at death, our body, uh, our soul is free from the body and we no longer have to deal with that part. Now, we look at that uh, and, and though quote and say, we believe the things that Plato believes and I subscribe to that, in some form or fashion, uh, we actually have a similar mentality as the mentality of what Plato and Aristotle taught about what it means to be actual beings and alive and to be human. Uh, For whatever reason, uh, since Plato and and on, we have been conditioned to believe uh, that there's two parts of us, maybe three, uh, and that our bodies are less important and that our souls need to be saved and it needs to go to heaven uh, and everything outside of the soul is evil or bad. And, and, and I would say this dichotomous relationship that we have with our own bodies have, have really plagued uh, our, our own lives, our relationships, and, and ultimately how we even view ourselves. And, and so many of you, when I say, like, we're going to be talking about our bodies today, immediately something goes off. 
And I would argue that it's because oftentimes we're conditioned by Platonic or Platonic thought about separating ourselves from our bodies. And so therefore we have experiences in the past or maybe even today or you might even tomorrow uh, of this dichotomous relationship with our bodies where oftentimes it will lead to self-hatred or shame. For one reason or another, we've been confronted uh, with our own mortalities, and so uh, we, we hate our, our bodies, or we have a skewed view of our bodies. Some of us, we have an unhealthy relationship with our bodies by idolatry, being overly obsessed with how we look, and how we, or how we perform. The centering our identities around just our bodies, which is just as unhealthy. And some of us, uh, is somewhere in between or, or a different option where some of us, because of our adoption of uh, a view in our body is different from our souls and our bodies is something we need to escape from that's led us to dislike or hate our bodies or to love our bodies so much that it's unhealthy uh, or somewhere in the middle where we just don't care and we become essentially Gnostic because, hey, who cares? We're all going to die anyways. But what I want to talk about this morning uh, is something that I believe the church has, has historically failed to do, which is to teach on a more biblical understanding of our bodies, which I would argue is very important to God, to the Bible, uh, because our bodies and our souls and our spirits are one being, just like the triune God, three persons in one. Our bodies are similar, where it, it, there is no level of hierarchy that God views us as a whole person, and therefore, all of us, our whole beings, are just as important as different components in our lives. Now, I mean, think about the resurrection itself of Jesus, the Easter story. Essentially, the crux of our faith that Jesus physically resurrected from the dead, that his body came back to life. That is the crux, the epicenter of our faith. And so clearly our bodies are important to God and sacred as we bear the image of our creator. And first, that's says, may the God of peace sanctify you entirely. Entirely in your whole being, may God do a work in you, in all of you. And may your spirit and your soul and your body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love this idea. May the God of peace surround you. May the God of peace be peace to you in all elements of your life within your own selves, as we talked about several weeks ago, when it comes to anxiety and division of our own minds and of our own hearts, may God bring peace to you that wrestle with that. May God bring peace to you and to me and to any of us who wrestle with this, with this false understanding of our bodies and maybe a self-hatred or maybe a self-denial or maybe an obsession, whatever it is. May God enter into even that space that the, that the church may not talk about as much and bring peace to you. But what does that peace look like when many of us are surrounded 
surrounded with messages about what we should look like, what we should do, uh, how we should look, how we should dress, how in the midst of this kind of society does God bring peace into our lives where we can love our entire selves, body, spirit, and soul? And I think Paul answers his own question when he writes uh, in 1 Corinthians, when he says, I have the right, this is the NIV, he says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not be mastered by anything. That's such a strange verse. And then he talks about food for the stomach and stomach for the food. And what does that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because I think it's important to understand what Paul is saying and how this uh, passage is answering that question of how do we find peace in our views of our spirit, of our souls, of our bodies. We have to understand what, what's happening in this culture. And for those of you that have been around, I love talking about the historicity of the Bible because I think it brings more meaning and life into what we're reading. And so to begin, let's understand the context of Paul. He's writing to the church in Corinthians, hence it's called Corinthians. He wrote probably multiple letters, but there's two on, on record. Uh, around 57 AD. And, and he right now currently is in Ephesus, in Asia Minor. And he caught wind of what's happening to the very church that he planted probably about five to six years ago. Uh, and so he writes a letter to the church that he planted addressing some of the things that are happening and the toxic poison that's happening inside the church. So you see, Paul planned the church because Corinth was a very strategic place uh, in the ancient Near East. Corinth was unique, uh, mainly uh, when it comes to its geographic location. Uh, and remember this word, and maybe you learned it in elementary or middle school, uh, but Corinth was, there's a slide up there, was an isthmus, meaning it was this, in this narrow uh, land where there was a bigger land up north and a bigger land uh, in the south. And so as far as uh, commerce and trade, Corinth was in a very strategic place, uh, not to mention the boats that would come from the east and the west. Corinth was like the epicenter of diversity, of culture, of worldviews, uh, of, of essentially everything. Corinth was the place. You can call it the modern-day New York City or London or Los Angeles, but Corinth was where everything happened. And everything came and merged together, including different religions, worship of different gods, different worldviews, again, different cultures. You name it, Corinth had it. In fact, Corinth was the host of what they would call the Ismian Games, considering their geography, uh, because it was an epicenter of the population, of, of where the known life was. Uh, and the Ismian Games were uh, as big, or even bigger, some scholars would say, as the Olympics. And for many of us, we're familiar with the Olympics. And, and the Ismian Games uh, was like the Olympics, but it was dedicated uh, for the worship of Poseidon, the pagan god of the sea. Corinth was also uh, the home of Aphrodite, the statue of Aphrodite, the goddess of pleasure and lust. 
And so I, I, I tell you all these things because that should give you a hint of what Corinth was all about. A, that there was so many cultures and worlds and worldviews and morality and ethics, uh, people from all over the world coming together in one spot. And so you can see that there was a diverse of opinions of what was right, what was wrong, what was healthy in Corinth. But you can see the direction that they were going to because uh, they had huge events like the Ismian Games to celebrate the pagan god of Poseidon. They had a huge statue uh, of Aphrodite uh, to celebrate and worship the goddess of lust and pleasure. You see, Paul was writing because what happened to the church that he planted, the church that was supposed to worship Jesus Christ and Christ alone fell into the temptation of latching on to the worldviews that are not of Christ. Pagan gods. Gods that uh, were antithetical to the message of the gospel. It was seen as a, a morally corrupt city. Again, centered around these statues, essentially meaning centered around lust, sexual immorality. And when the Bible talks about sexual immorality, especially in this 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it's about incest and pederasty and, and temple prostitution, which in modern day would essentially be human trafficking. Christians, the church that, that Paul planted was getting mixed up in all of this because they had let go of the true reason why they were even first there was to be the light to the world, not become the same as the world. It was so corrupt that there was a verb called to be Corinthianized. It was a common phrase to be Corinthianized. And it was almost an insult uh, to say that you also practice in this uh, immoral behavior and lust and adultery and idolatry. You have become Corinthianized because it was that plagued, that much plagued with immor- immorality. Now, as Paul was writing in Ephesus, he got wind of what was happening and, and how the church has fallen. Uh, and so he writes the, the Corinthian church a letter. And, and I love this letter uh, that he writes and how he writes, especially in chapter 6, because he's using... Uh, Corinthian uh, slogan. So theologians and scholars, they would call this the Corinthian slogans. Now, in Corinth during this time, there was a slogan, uh, and the slogan mantra that everybody was aware of, that everybody lived by, even the Christian church that Paul planted, I have the right to do anything. And it says, I have the right to do anything you say, So he says that because it's a common phrase. I have the right to do anything. And so he's he's addressing this worldview, this mindset that people have fallen into. I have the right to do anything was a common slogan, and everybody knew it. And we can compare it to, uh, especially this morning, if I said the slogan, just do it, what would you think of? Nike, right? I, many of us, we, we know that. Uh, we, we know that immediately when we hear that slogan, we hear Nike. How about if I say, M&M's melt in your mouth, not in your hand. Okay, so many of us know that. How about this one? Uh, 
and maybe the jingle will you know, get stuck in your head. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And so just like these slogans that we know all well today, uh, the slogan, I have the right to do anything, was a very well-known slogan uh, in Corinth during this time. And Paul's response to that slogan, I can do anything, uh, what he's saying is, yes, you may legally, and, and, and legally as in different, different ways to think about this, he is talking to uh, the, the Jewish converts, the Christians, who have been told that they are free from the law. That they're free from, from the law. They, they have freedom in that. And they somehow misinterpret saying, if I'm free from the law, that means I can do anything. I have the right to do anything. Uh, another way that people have interpreted this is, hey, if it's legal, then it's okay, obviously. If it's not against the law, then I have the right to do anything I want. I can treat my body in any way that I want. I can treat others any way that I want. I mean, this is the time where, again, incest and pederasty and sexual immorality and and human trafficking and really doing anything you want to others and yourself, as long as it's legal, it's okay. This was the mentality that they were living by, even the Christians. And Paul is saying, no. Whether it's permissible or legal or even absent in Scripture, because, you know, if we're really be honest, the Bible doesn't talk about every little detail that might happen in our lives. So Paul is saying whether uh, something is permissible, legal, or absent in Scripture is not, I repeat, not a good criteria if you should actually follow through with it. And yes, Paul is talking specifically here about sexual immorality, but the roots of this is essentially the question, how do you view your own body? How do you view the bodies of others in the midst of this culture, in the midst of these worldviews and pagan gods and worship of Aphrodite and, and Poseidon? Like, in the midst of all of that, what is your view of your own self, of others? And I love Paul's response because he takes in the ancient slogan, the well-known slogan, and kind of does a judo move and flips it on its back. Uh, Because originally it says, uh, the slogan says, I have the right to do anything. So right is this Greek word exousia, which really means power. I have the power to do anything, uh, exousia. But his response to that is, but I will not be mastered. So uh, I, I have the right, and then it says, I will not be mastered. Right and mastered is actually the same exact word in the Greek, which is power, exousia. I have the exousia to do anything, but I will not be exousiaed by anything. Now it's passive. What he's essentially saying is, I have the power. Yes, I have the freedom. I have the liberty to do whatever I want, as long as it's legal. But Paul is saying, but I choose not to be powered by those things, by anything. Paul's point here is, is I would say, brilliant. Paul's calling out these Corinthians, especially these Corinthian Christians, and he's saying, 
you think you're experiencing freedom, don't you? Because you think you can just do anything you want with your bodies and how you treat yourself and how you treat others. It's a very physical thing in this land of lust and pleasure. He's specifically talking about our own bodies. And he's saying, you think you have the freedom. You think you're free from the law. You think you're free to do whatever you want. You think you're experiencing freedom, but actually you're not experiencing freedom. You're becoming more enslaved. You're becoming more enslaved. Because here's, here's the lesson here that we think, and this is true for us today, we think freedom is the ability to do what we want to do. Right? If, if I said define freedom, like if I said you are free, a very basic definition of that would be, well, I'm f- freedom to me means, hey, I can do whatever I want to do. And what Paul is saying, no, no. True freedom, uh, true and authentic God-given freedom is the ability to not do what we want to do. Let me juxtapose that again. We think freedom is the ability to do what we want to do. Mm -mm. True freedom is the ability to not do what we want to do. Uh, essentially what what Paul is saying you think you experience life and joy by by taking advantage of the freedom to do whatever you want in the temple with your bodies with their bodies you think you're finding true life and joy in this freedom but actually that's not where freedom comes from ironically freedom actually comes from the ability to be restrainful like to, to restrain uh, you, you have to understand, this is a very countercultural thinking. This whole time, uh, the Corinthian Christians are like, I have adopted the, the rules uh, of the land that anything goes. As long as it's legal, I can do it. That is freedom. And Paul is stepping up here and saying, actually, uh, the more you practice that, the more enslaved you will be. Because true freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. True freedom is the ability to say no. Restraint is good. Boundaries are healthy. And what Paul is saying, in light of how we view our bodies, the lower view of our bodies would be to say, I can do whatever I want, so therefore I'm going to do it. A higher view of our bodies, Paul would say, is having the ability to do what you want, but saying no. Restraint is good. Boundaries are healthy. And yet, oftentimes, we try to push those boundaries. We, tr- we want to say no. And when I was a youth pastor, before here, I was a youth pastor for several years. And I would say this. The, the most common question I would get from teenagers is the question, uh, apprentice, how far is too far? I mean, that's kind of the age-old question that teenagers ask. How far is too far. And what I've realized uh, after my years of then kind of, you know, going to college ministry and young adult ministry and, and here in church ministry, that that question act never goes away. 
The question of how far is too far, yes, can be applied to your uh, romantic relationships and, and physical intimacy, but it could also uh, intrude the ways that we treat our own bodies and, and what we eat and how we live in our jobs and how to pursue upward mobility. I mean, this question infiltrates our entire lives. How far is too far? What is the boundary? Yes, Prentice, I hear you that sometimes it's important for us to say no no to things, that for us to say, I choose to live differently than the worldviews that are infused and toxic and poisoning our souls, just like in Corinthians. Yes, I believe that. I don't want to live like that, but I want to get really close. I want to do just enough not to get in trouble by God, but to still enjoy and have pleasures in life. And again, if we have that mentality and as we live with that mentality, we're not actually experiencing freedom the way we think we are because I'm going to do whatever I want as long as up to this line. I would say that is as exhausting as it can be because all you're doing is trying to figure out what that line is and going right up to it. And what that happens is if you happen to go over, then you feel shame. If you happen to go under, then you want to do more. I mean, you are just stuck in this middle that is so unhealthy and so toxic. And it's so exhausting. So we live in a world where we're driven, absolutely driven to seek this instant gratification. And so we test these boundaries because if it doesn't bring us gratification, we want to do more. And then when that becomes not enough, then we want to do more. And then we want to do more. We are plagued with this desire and this need for instant gratification. I would say really is no different from what uh, the Corinthians were experiencing. Maybe it looks different, but it's the same concept of this instant gratification that we need to scratch. And if it's not instant gratification, oftentimes it's unacceptable. I mean, think about even how dating has changed as far as apps. And I'm not saying online dating is wrong, right? Like, I know plenty of people that have met their husbands and wives, and it's great. But we have this idea that if you just swipe then it's like a yes, yes, no, yes, no, no, yes, yes. I, I mean, it's just like this instant or false notion of relationship. Or, or maybe it's even uh, an I, this is me, uh, the drive through window, anybody else? Instant gratification. The internet, the temporary highs from substances, from sex, from food. We're in a society where it says, If you can get it instantly, this instant satisfaction, then go for it. As long as you're not technically breaking the rules or breaking the law, go for it. It's good. And and what Paul and what the Bible is saying is that is a, a very terrible criteria. If it's legal, it's okay. That's a terrible way to live. And you think it brings you freedom, but it doesn't. It continues to keep you in bondage because real freedom is your strength and your discipline to say, no, thank you. No, thank you. And so to this question, how far is too far, uh, Andy Stanley, uh, one of my favorite preachers and, and speakers, he has a book. In uh, the book, just it's a small little book, and the whole book is called The Best Question Ever. And ultimately, it's in response to the question, 
How far is too far? And he would say the best question ever is this. And I think it's so true and applicable to our lives. Don't ask. Don't ask if something is right or wrong. Essentially, don't ask what the limits are. Don't ask what the boundaries are. Don't ask whether something is right or wrong. Ask if it's wise. Don't ask if something is right or wrong. The best question to ask is, is it wise? And and, and I would add, is it beautiful? Is it a a healthy and God-fearing and God-loving way to live? The decisions that you make about your own bodies, what you could be what you eat, it could be what you do, it could be what you not do, how you view the other person's body, how you view, uh, you know, is it utilitarian purposes or do you actually see the other person bearing the image of God just like everybody else? I mean, that's a question that we need to be asking ourselves. And then as we move on to the second, there's two slogans actually that Paul is addressing. One is, I can do whatever I want. And Paul kind of nips that at the button and says, that's not true. I mean, technically it's true, but that's not going to be the way that you experience joy and life and transformation. So the second slogan he has to deal with is, he says, you say I can do anything I want. So that's a slogan. And then he says, You also say, in verse 13, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. What in the world is he saying? Essentially, he's being quite obvious, actually. He's saying the stomach gets hungry. What do you do when the stomach gets hungry? You satisfy it with food. Then what happens? The food digests it out. And then when we get hungry again, that cycle happens over again, over and over and over. And then to kind of seal it, he says, and then we die. Therefore, what he's saying is the slogan is saying, therefore, it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. It does what it's supposed to do. You get hungry, you feed it. If you hunger for food, for sex, for drugs, for, you know, for a temporary high or a joy or, or to, to cure a boredom or whatever it is, you just feed it. And then when that happens again, you do it again. And then when that happens again, then you do it again. And then ultimately you die and then it's all over. And what Paul is saying is that that's not true. See, in a world when they were living, and I would say that when we, as we're living... We live in a world where we're constantly taught that if it feels good, you go for it. If it feels good, you go for it. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. We're all going to die, uh, and it's all good. What that's ultimately doing is that's reinforcing, going back to our beginning, that's reinforcing Plato and Plato's views that the body doesn't matter. That it's a lesser cause. That I don't need the body. So do whatever I want because it's going to be gone anyways. It's reinforcing Plato where it says, uh, I, I don't want it. And often when we experience this Platonic view, we're saying, body, I don't want it. It's bad. Soul is good. And so for right now, as I'm alive, I'm just going to do what feels good because at the end of the day, that's going to be gone. 
reinforcing this division of our bodies. Or I would even say, in, in an extreme case, a self-hatred of our bodies. And what Paul is saying as an antidote to that, he says, the body, however, he says, the slogan says, you know, you, you go through this pleasure and receive, pleasure and receive, and then you die and then it's all gone. And Paul is saying, that is absolutely not true. He says, the body, however, in verse 13, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Meaning, this physical life is not the end of it. Your bodies will live on. That is how sacred and how beautiful your bodies are, and that is created to bear the image of God, which is immortal. That is how Paul is saying that the slogan is wrong, and this is correct. And it changes the entire perspective of how we should view ourselves and really others. That the bodies that we have, A, will live forever because mortality, immortality is a gift that God gives us. And secondly, the day that we profess Christ as our Lord, we surrender. We surrender our lives and, and literally our life. And our bodies no longer belong to us, but it belongs to God. So there's this idea of stewardship. I mean, I'm not here to, again, to give you the self-help. You know, you can, you can kind of grapple with what that looks like yourself, whether it's eating differently or exercising or sleeping. I know that's one thing that I struggle with, finding work-life balance, dealing with addictions, whatever it is. I mean, I, that's, that's not what I want to do today. What I want to do today is what does it look like to actually Understand that our bodies don't belong to us. We've surrendered it and it belongs to God. Then it ends up being a question of stewardship. I mean, have you ever borrowed something from somebody? I'm sure all of us have. And I remember several years ago when I was having car troubles and actually had a generous friend who let me borrow his car. Uh, it was nothing special, but it was great. It was enough for me to get around, get to work, uh, you know, visit and go places. And when I returned it a few days later, I had this sudden, I don't know, I was compelled to not just give the car back, uh, but to give it back differently. You know the phrase like, uh, if you grab something, put it back where you found it or better than you found it. I was compelled to do something like that, where I was like, uh, I don't normally wash my car. If you've been around my car, you know it's not clean. But if I'm borrowing someone else's car, know that when I give it back, I'm going to wash it or, you know, I'm going to, this was in L.A., and, uh, or, you know, gas it up for you or clean it or make sure, you know, it's well taken care of or even when I am driving it, I'm being super cautious. Like, in my car, I can be, I wouldn't say reckless, but, you know, a little bit more free, uh, but when I'm borrowing someone else's car or, you know, whatever it is, you want to take care of it. And, and I think that's the shift in our mind when we believe that and truly believe that we've given our lives and our life and our bodies and everything we are to God and it all belongs to God. We no longer become the owner, but we become stewards of it. And, and oftentimes that changes everything. And so my hope this morning is that whether we have a healthy or unhealthy relationship with our bodies, that first of all, 
that you would know above all things that you are sacred, that you are created in the image of God, so therefore you are beautiful. And if that's something that's hard to grasp or hard to confess or hard to know, and maybe that means there's another step that you have to take in order to you know, talk to somebody and that's completely okay and that's oftentimes necessary. But for this morning, what I want you to know is that God loves you. God has created you. And you are fearfully and wonderfully made and God cares about your whole being that includes your bodies. And when we say that and believe that and give our bodies to God, that we, my hope is that we become stewards of it, good stewards of it. And how that looks, you're going to have to answer that for yourself. But maybe we can start adding practices in our lives that would demonstrate that we're living in a way that is not being coerced by culture, society, and what it means to you know, be happy and joyful, but instead that we would live our lives giving and surrendering, surrendering our lives to Christ. All of it. That includes our body, our spirit, our souls, our entire beings. And so as I invite the worship team back up in a time of response, I invite all of us, again, to do an inventory of our own self, in our relationship with our soul, our spirit, and our bodies. To know that in all of that, God loves us. In all of that, God has created us wonderfully and fearfully. And may we live into that. Because when we live into that, we treat ourselves more kindly and graciously and others as well. May we be transformed in our minds, in our hearts, in our bodies, to pursue more and more of Christ and what Christ has for us. Let me pray. God, thank you that you care for, all, for our entire being. And may we care just as much of our whole being, that we'd be good stewards of the life that you've given us. God, if there's any unhealthy ways that we've been living that is actually destroying our spirit, our soul, our bodies, God, would you reveal that to us? Would you change our ways and create healthy and life-giving habits in our lives that in everything that we do, we may worship you? Everything we say in the ways that we treat others and the way that we live, the way we take care of ourselves, may it honor and worship you. Convict us, Lord. Forgive us. Transform us. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's continue in worship. Continue in worship. Continue in worship. Continue in worship. Continue in worship.